All right, so week three, Sermon on the Mount series. Pastor Jade spoke last week on blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. The previous week, he talked about the kingdom and he set up the context for which we find the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to move into the next three of the Beatitudes. But before we do, in the event that there are people here who did not hear either of the first two sermons and aren't quite sure what, what I would be talking about if I jumped right into the middle of the Beatitudes, I'm going to set it up for just a moment. So here in the book of Matthew, his telling, uh, his way of telling the story is that we have the birth of Jesus, we have the Magi, we have Jesus going into the wilderness, being sent into the wilderness um, right after his baptism to be tempted and to fast for 40 days. And Jesus comes back from temptation. He does not succumb to temptation and he comes back and he immediately starts proclaiming the gospel teaching the kingdom, and healing uh, the sick and casting out demons. These are the proclamation of the kingdom, the teaching about the kingdom, and the signs of the kingdom. And the very first actual teaching we get in the book of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5 and runs through chapter 7. And so I'm going to read, this is not going to be up on the screen because I didn't give it to him, but the very first verse, now when he saw the crowds, he went up, on a mountainside, and sat down. Then his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and we'll read the Beatitudes in just a moment. But Matthew is being very intentional and purposeful in the way that he tells this story. No detail is haphazard or accidental. Matthew is making a point that Jesus sees the crowd and decides to move away from the crowd up on a mountainside. Now, there are no doubt a number of things that Matthew, the gospel writer, is trying to communicate in this, the, not the least of which is that Jesus is not interested in curating a group of admirers, people who are following him because of all the wonderful, spectacular things that he does. Jesus is interested in having followers who are disciples Jesus is interested in disciples. He is a disciple maker. And so Matthew gives us this little detail that, that Jesus sees the crowd and goes away from the crowd up the mountain. And his disciples, who at the time, it might have only been the first four of the disciples that were called, follow him. And Jesus begins to tell them the gospel through the lens of these beatitudes, Jesus gives the Beatitudes to, I've got three quick things. This is our brief introduction. Number one, change the way that his disciples perceive the poor, the meek, the merciful, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. All nine of the Beatitudes fill in the first half. So you got to remember the Jewish perception of the Messiah, who they're just now, some of them beginning to put the pieces together that maybe Jesus is the Messiah, maybe he's just a prophet, maybe he's a rabbi, but maybe he's the long-awaited Messiah. And what they're anticipating with the, with the coming of the Messiah is a, a political and governmental revolution to restore Israel to power. So one of the things Jesus is doing in telling them the Beatitudes is he's shifting their paradigm of the people who are in the kingdom. To them, they would have been thinking Jesus is not coming for the sick and the meek and to be merciful to sinners and people who don't have any power. Jesus would be coming 
to take authority politically. He would come to those who have money. Jesus would be coming to garner as much influence as he possibly can. But Jesus tells them right off the bat, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. What kind of sense does this make? Jesus is shifting their paradigm. He's changing the way that the disciples perceive the poor, the meek, the merciful, the people who will inherit the kingdom of God. Number two, Jesus is casting a vision for their future as disciples. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you'll know you're following me when you find yourselves identifying with the things in this list more and more. You'll know you're following me when one day somebody wrongs you and what comes out of you is not vengeance but meekness. When somebody does something to you that bothers you and rather than doing what the law says you could do, you show mercy. You'll know you're following me when these are the things that flow out of your life. This is what it is to be a follower, a disciple, not an admirer. Not someone who follows Jesus around because of the spectacular things he does like a magician. This is not Cirque du Soleil AD 1. That's not what this is. Jesus is performing signs and wonders, but what he's interested in is those being signs of the kingdom. And who is the kingdom? The kingdom are the people of God who follow in the way of God as revealed in these beatitudes, in this sermon that Jesus is about to give. Number three, Jesus gives the Beatitudes to reveal what he and his father are really like. This undoubtedly went completely over their heads when they're hearing this for the first time. They're hearing this, and probably of these three objectives, they're really only getting a little bit of the first one. They might leave this moment and start thinking, really? Really? Blessed are the poor? That doesn't make any sense, Andrew. How blessed are the mourning ones? This makes no sense. But Jesus is doing so much more than just blessing or talking about the ways in which those who are poor in spirit or mourning or meek or merciful are flourishing in his kingdom economy. He's actually saying, guys, this is what I'm really like. So for years and years, when I read the Beatitudes, which all begin in my Bible with the word blessed, what I assumed was that the Beatitudes are God's way of having pity on those who are having a tough time in life. Think of it like this. A teacher who has a student that is just, gives 100% in everything they do, but for the life of this one student, they're just never going to be good at math. No matter how much they try, they give all of their effort, and yet they're a C-plus math student at best. So the way that I had intuited the Beatitudes is like this teacher looking at this student and going, oh man, they're just, there's no way they're going to pass this class, so I'm just, I'm going to give them some extra credit. I can't just completely change their test scores, but I can give them some extra credit. I had intuited that blessed is like God's favor because he has pity on people. But that's not really what's happening here. 
This blessed is actually the fact that Jesus, the God of the universe, takes on flesh. And when he does, he embodies these things. He identifies with these people. He doesn't just have pity on the poor and throw them a bone so that hopefully they'll know, wink, wink, he's on their side. God actually identifies with the poor, the mourners, the meek, the merciful, those whose whole lives are hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. So the Beatitudes are actually revealing what God is like, not just the kind of people that flourish in God's kingdom. So with all of that said, let's read a few verses from Matthew chapter 5. We're only going to read verses 5 through 7, but man, I got a lot of scripture for us today. So all you sword drill folks, get ready. Here we go. Matthew 5, 5 through 7. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Guys, we have had these words as people for over 2,000 years, and they are just as radical today as they were on the day that Jesus gave them. Blessed are the meek. Let's begin there. This is going to be a little bit Bible study information and then a lot preachy at the end, by the way, okay? Just for those of you who are like, what am I expecting today? You can expect... 15 to 20 minutes of Bible study and 10 minutes of preaching and coming to the table. Here we go. Blessed are the meek, for they, for they will inherit the earth. Who are the meek? The meek are those who are slow to assert their will, but exercise restraint and self-control in submission to God's work. Those who are slow to assert their will but exercise restraint and self-control in submission to God's work. A friend of mine rewrote the Beatitudes as a way of helping us, he's a theologian, as a way of helping us rehear with them with shock value. And the way that he says this is, blessed are those who are happy to not get their way. Oh man, that describes me to a T. <laughs> Anyone who knows me knows that is not true. But blessed are those who are happy to not get their way. How is this possible? Because they have learned to trust that the world is better off in God's hands than their own. This is Jesus in Philippians 2 saying, He is not the one, though he had everything, who considered equality with God something to be grasped. The one who had everything rightly had the authority and the power, even then resisted grasping at power to usurp his father's will. How many times in the Gospels does Jesus say, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father speaking. This is the meekness embodied in Jesus Christ. That Jesus in the wilderness had resource, power, authority, and anonymity to turn that stone into bread. And Satan actually helped him justify it using scripture. And Jesus resisted because Jesus is meek. And Jesus knew that his power was not to make his own life easier, 
but that his power was to be utilized to accomplish his father's will for the benefit of all mankind. How many of us in positions of power, think about your workplace, think about your social circles. If you're the wealthy friend in every friend circle, think about your social circles. Think about your family. Think about with your kids. Ah, that one hurts. How often do we embody meekness? How often are we slow to get our will because it's actually better for the other people? It is so hard, friends, when society is pressing on us from every direction saying, if you can do it ethically or morally or skirt around it with a wink-wink, you should do it if it will advance your own life. With whatever, with business, with relationships, whatever it is, society is pressing on us all the time. Go get what's yours. Make it happen for yourself. Take things into your own hands. But Jesus does quite the opposite. Jesus embodies meekness. I want us to look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37. We're going to read the first, verse, the first 11 verses. And here's what I want you to pay attention to as we're reading. I want you to pay attention to all of the verbs, okay? Now, I was never particularly good in English, but I think verbs are the things that happen, the things that are done, are did, as we used to say in Central Florida, okay? So pay attention to all the verbs in this. Psalm 37, verse 1, Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass they will soon wither, like green plants they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. The justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Did you pay attention to the verbs there? What did the wicked do? They succeed in carrying out wicked schemes. Friends, isn't that maddening? It's maddening when people use evil means to do evil things to get ahead in life and they actually succeed at it all the time. And the worst is when it's at your expense. It's awful. The psalmist says, don't fret. They will succeed. They will carry out their plans. These things will happen. This isn't don't fret. God's going to intervene at the last second and nothing bad will ever happen to you. This is they're going to do bad things and it's going to hurt you. It's going to cost you some stuff. It might cost you some relationships or some opportunities. Even still, don't fret. What else do the evil do, the wicked do? They plot against the righteous. 
Why? So vindictive. They draw their swords to bring down the poor. Don't the poor already have a hard enough time? Now they've got people at their backs. But their swords will end up piercing their own hearts. What do the meek do? The meek commit their ways to the Lord. They trust him. They are still. They wait. They refrain from anger and wrath because it only exacerbates evil. They hope in the Lord and they enjoy the land that is their inheritance. Well, what does God do in this chapter, in this psalm? God makes your righteousness shine. That's beautiful, but it, it kind of sounds a little cheesy, like reading rainbow-ish. Like the evil are out here carrying out their evil schemes, and God will make your righteousness shine. I don't want God to make my righteousness shine. I want him to take care of those people. He laughs at the wicked. But God, this ain't funny. He upholds the righteous and preserves an inheritance for them. And then somehow, his enemies vanish like smoke. Friends, this is the message of meekness. The lives of the meek are marked by patience, trust, and restraint. And it only makes sense because we believe that what we see is true, but it's not the end. God is not done working. God is still moving. God is still working. And he will have the final word. Can I get an amen? amen. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. These are some of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. <clears throat> And then we're about to move on to the next <clears throat> beatitude. But just hear these verses. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. <laughs> Don't you love that? An example of how to suffer. Oh, it's so wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, speaking of when Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, when sinful people, when evil is carried out, not just attempted, but carried out against you in your life, Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Amen. The justice of God has not fully come. It has come in part, but it has not come in full. God is still working on your behalf. And if you trust that, you can release control and say, God, I trust that the world is better off in your hands than the illusion when I try and grasp and actually think I have a measure of control over my own life. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The second, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Who are these people? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness long for God's justice to be manifest everywhere, even in the depths of their own heart. 
These are those who ache for things to be as they ought to be on earth as in heaven. This is convicting. This is challenging. I want God's justice, but it is few and far between circumstances when I actually ache for God's justice to be manifest everywhere. I'm probably very late to the party, but I saw, um, I saw the news and I saw the video of Tyree Nichols the other day being beaten and then dying in the hospital. And friends, as Chris prayed, I, I'm not here to stir up political divisions. That, that's not my intention. We don't have to all agree on how best just justice is executed in the government. But what we, as the people of God, must agree on is that we learn to desire and long and ache for God's justice to come to everyone. To everyone. We don't have to have this facade or an illusion that we know how it should all be done. Too many people are out there talking like they have all the answers to how these things actually need to come to pass. Most of us have no clue. But here is what we have a clue, that God's heart breaks when people are treated unjustly and unfairly. God's heart breaks when you are treated unfairly and unjustly. And God's heart breaks when you, knowingly or unknowingly, treat someone else unjustly or unfairly. God's heart breaks. Are we the kind of people who are at least posturing ourselves, saying, Lord, I want your heart. I want to ache. I want to long for justice to come to everyone And Jesus, guys, takes this to the extreme. He always does that. Why does he do that? And he asks us to want it even for our enemies. Jesus asks us to pray for our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to ache for justice to come even for those who persecute and mistreat us. Last year, I had the privilege to go to Romania on a trip with uh, other New Lifers, and it was fantastic. And I saw so many things that broke my heart in Romania, as most of the time, if you go on a missions trip, will happen to you. One of the most beautiful things I have ever seen is there was a lady who had a position of privilege, a position of power in the government. She was I don't know if she was in the government or a business person contracting with the government, but she was well-off, well-educated, and she gave it all up because there was a people group that no matter how hard she tried in the government to reach, she couldn't reach, and that was the disabled population. The disabled community in Romania are given very little as young kids, and then when they hit an age much younger than 18... They get nothing. Their family gets nothing. So she quit her position, and she took over a home for the disabled that was floundering, that was in debt, barely had enough money to feed just the handful of mouths that they had. And she has committed herself to this job, making far less money, working far more hours, in a position where she will never graduate and move up. There's nothing to move up to. And she will likely never be thanked by anyone other than the immediate family members of the people that she is caring for. 
Why on earth would someone do that? Because their bones ache for the justice of God. Their bones, their whole being aches for the justice of God. And why is this so counterintuitive? Because when sin entered the world, it bent us away from loving one another, loving God, living in communion with God and neighbor, and it bent us in on ourselves. Self-preservation, selfish interests, get ahead, do whatever you gotta do to make the best life for yourself and your immediate family members. But the way of Jesus has always been, look out, I have brought you into existence for a life full of reciprocated giving. I give everything to you so that you give it away. I give you mercy so that you give it away. I give you provision so that you give it away. I shine kindness and gentleness and grace on you so that you'll give it away. This is the kind of life that we are called to, a life that aches for the righteousness and justice of God. And here's the thing. This verse promises that they will be filled. And filled is kind of an empty word in English, but what this really means, I love this. One um, commentator translated it, bloated with satisfaction. (laughs) Bloated is not the most enticing word, but if it's with satisfaction, I think I could get onto that. I think I could want me some of that. Those who hunger and thirst for God's justice to be manifest everywhere will in the end be bloated with satisfaction. Paul says it in Ephesians 3.20, that he is the one who will do and can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Friends, don't let what you perceive to be reality quench hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God because he can do creatively what you can't even imagine So our prayer should be, God, I don't even begin to know how your justice and your righteousness can come to bear in the earth around me. But I'm asking that you would show me, and I'm asking that it would start in the depths of my heart. Not with the work of my hands, but start in the depths of my heart. God, I want to care. I want to ache for justice, and I want whatever possible good can come from my hands, for my hands to be ones that enable your work in the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And lastly, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Give me just one second. Y'all, it's quiet. But Chris prayed that we would be wrecked, so I'm just attributing this to him. Who are the merciful? The merciful are those who do unto others as they would want done to themselves because God's mercy has made their hearts tender. God's mercy has made their hearts tender. Let's turn to Matthew 18. We're going to read a parable together. Matthew 18, just for the sake of time, I'm going to jump right in, verses 23 through 30. Jesus is responding here to Peter, saying, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven, right? Oh, Peter. Don't be stingy with forgiveness, Peter. And so he says, beginning in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king 
who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents would be equivalent to millions of dollars for us today. So a large sum that this man would unlikely to have been able to pay throughout the course of his life. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. Does this sound familiar? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. This verse says, Blessed are the merciful, not blessed are the ones who use mercy at their own discretion. So many times, friends, we, we who have received mercy, we're, we know what it is, and we probably unknowingly, to give us the benefit of a doubt, use mercy as a tool to get ourselves ahead, to be the ones to judge who does and does not deserve mercy. Well, I gave them mercy one time, and it didn't go so well. So mercy now has stopped flowing out of me. And this is what wounds do to us. When we are wounded, we withhold, we preserve. We don't let the mercy of God that has touched our own hearts flow through us. We are not merciful. We are ones who on occasion use mercy with discretion where it might benefit us. This person, if, if I'm merciful with them, that, yeah, they'll be on my side. They'll, they'll pay it back to me. I know that they will. And so often, this is how we treat being merciful. But that's not how Jesus is merciful with us. Jesus is the one who came and showed us mercy on the one thing that no matter how hard we tried, we could never make right, and that is our own sinfulness. No matter what we do, no matter if we collected every resource, all of our brain power, there is nothing we could do to make our sinfulness right. And this is the thing that Jesus has forgiven on the cross. And yet we are ones who turn around and constantly withhold mercy. And we act as the judges ourselves. Do they really deserve it? Do I think they're going to receive it right? Or are they going to receive this as tolerance or permissiveness? Friends, these Beatitudes are not meant to be go and do these things in increasing measure, though that wouldn't be a bad thing. The Beatitudes are, as I said in the beginning, when you're following Jesus and the life of God is alive in you, you will see these things coming to pass in your life in increasing measure. Pause and ask yourself, in my family, am I merciful? At work? Am I a merciful person? Is there a wound inside of me that the mercy of God needs to touch so that it can flow through me 
Mercy is not something that is meant to be held and accumulated. Mercy is something that is meant to be received and given, to flow like a river. We don't get to dam up mercy in our lives and store it and then decide a little bit goes this way and a little bit goes this way. Eh, not, not those people. I don't like those people. If we show mercy to those people, they might in turn do something that actually makes, takes some of my power away and makes me weaker than I already am. Blessed are the merciful. And there are two ways that I think we receive mercy. One is what we mostly think reciprocated mercy. That when we sow mercy, it is inevitable that mercy will be reaped in our own lives, both from God and from the people around us. But I think there's actually a deeper way that we receive mercy. And I think that is we receive not just mercy for a circumstance or for something, but the gift of mercy from God's own life into our life that tenderizes our hearts and makes us more like him. That when we are merciful, God actually gives us the gift of mercy, which softens us, which opens our eyes to see people with compassion and empathy and to see their brokenness and their woundedness and our own brokenness and our own woundedness and the ways that we have already been forgiven and received mercy. Blessed are the merciful. I want to read a different story in our communion attendants can prepare to come from John chapter 8. <clears throat> John chapter 8 verses, what did I say? Verses 2 through 11. Go back to verse 2 there, Everett. Well, I'll just read it. No problem. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts when all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and uh, Seth or Philip can come, whoever's going to be playing this morning. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. A different kind of merciful response. In the first story, the one man had received the greatest act of mercy possible and chose to not allow that same mercy to be given through him to someone else in need. And then Jesus, the one person who has the right and the position and the authority to condemn, 
refuses to condemn someone who was caught in the act of sin. And Jesus extends mercy before saying, go and sin no more. Friends, I am convinced that most of the time in our lives, I'll make this deeply personal, in my life, when I am unwilling or refuse to extend mercy, it's because I don't really believe that Jesus has been that good to me. That there's some part of me, something in the depths, that believes, yeah, he's touched a few things, but is he really going to be merciful with that? And I'm just here to tell you, right before we come to the table, his mercy touches that. And so much more than you could ever ask or imagine. Stand with me. There is a thread through these Beatitudes. And it is the thread of trust, particularly trusting God. It makes no sense at all to be meek unless you trust that we serve a God who is all-powerful and is not done working. It makes no sense to ache for God's righteousness if you don't trust that his righteousness and his justice is actually good for the world. And it makes no sense to be merciful if you don't trust or can't trust that God has already been merciful with you and will continue being merciful with you until the very end. So my question for us before we come forward this morning is can we allow the Spirit to examine our hearts this morning to see if there are places within us that he's asking us to trust a little bit more, to give him a little bit more. We've given him a lot of this one particular area of our lives, but this other piece is guarded. And the Holy Spirit stands there gently saying, but let me touch that with my mercy. Trust me, I am meek. I'm not coercive. I'm not manipulative. I'm better than you could ever ask or imagine. Will you let me touch it? Will you trust me to touch it? Friends, will we trust God? And this is not another thing that we just need to muscle up and do more of. All we need to do is say, God, I'm willing. God, I'm willing. It might take a lot because of the wounds that I've experienced in this life, but I am willing. I'm willing for you to touch it. I'm willing for you to go there. I'm willing to try it, to try out your mercy and see what happens to me, what kind of person I will become when I receive more and more and more of the mercy of God. So friends, Before we come to the table, I want us to pray together this prayer of confession which begins with the phrase, most merciful God. Let's, Let's put that up on the screen and let's pray this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, this morning... 
we say this and pray this knowing that he is a merciful God. And so I pronounce to you that the Father, through the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit, forgives you this morning. Come to the table of the Lord. Let's exit out the left side. Um, All of the elements are gluten-free. And receive the bread and receive the cup and take them back to your seat and we will partake together as a community at the end. So please come to the table of the Lord.